This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right, you're All listening right. to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master, Jason Kelly. We've got another city, as we know, uh, and really state, Jason, that's in lockdown. Well, and this is a really important story because a lot of what's happening on the West Coast is more and more quickly making its way to the East Coast. Let's go to Los Angeles now. Chris Palmieri, my fellow bureau chief uh, out there in Los Angeles. Uh, Chris, great to have you with us. I know it is incredibly busy for you because – the state of California, the governor, uh, Gavin Newsom, declaring essentially what we heard Governor Cuomo here in New York declare today, effectively sheltering in place. Help us understand what's going on on the ground in Los Angeles. Well, yes, it was kind of a bizarre evening last night because first we had uh, L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti having a press conference where he announced much tougher terms, basically a sheltering in place uh, order. Uh, and then an hour later, uh, Governor Newsom ordering it for the entire state. So it became a situation where you wondered, did, did these people even talk? Uh, um, you know, it's um, this is the first day went into effect in Los Angeles. I took a walk around. I went to my supermarket this morning. It was a sobering sight. There's a line, people down the block, separated by a few feet. They were letting them in. Uh, five at a time. Uh, the security guard there told me that was due to robberies. They've had frequent robberies. There was um, also security inside the uh, supermarket, uh, and they were out of toilet paper, uh, and they were announcing that things that they were out of to the line. Um, uh, you know, the, the rest of the city is eerily quiet. It's, it almost feels like a science fiction movie. There's no cars on the street. This is, um, you know, a city where it can take me uh, 45 minutes to an hour to drive six miles to work. Uh, and uh, there's, you know, uh, a smattering, particularly in the afternoon, of people dog walking and jogging. And sometimes you see people wearing masks. Uh, uh, but uh, for the most part, eerily quiet. I went around to some other stores, you know, our sort of classic uh, strip shopping centers that are all around the city. And, uh, surprisingly, uh, quite a few of them are still open. I mean, there were, uh, you know, sandwich shops, uh, dry cleaners. Uh, those are all allowed in the order. Uh, I spoke to the owner of an Irish import shop. Uh, he does sell groceries. He felt that was uh, okay by him. But uh, there are some other businesses, a pawn shop, um, a Thai massage place, uh, that were uh, at least had open signs. Uh, and uh, sort of questionable interpretation of essential services. P- Chris, you know, I do wonder, too, it sounds like people are certainly taking it seriously because we've heard, you know, we just heard from the New, New-, New Jersey governor and even from the Massachusetts governor saying, you know, you ne- you got to take this seriously. You cannot be out and about. But we've had stories about folks in Florida, younger generations, uh, you know, out there and congregating in large groups. What are the conversations that you're hearing? Or It sounds like people are all of all ages are taking it seriously. Is that the case? Certainly for what I'm seeing, you know, I, I see, the, you know, people just literally moving off of the sidewalk as you're walking to, you know, into the street just to, to keep within six feet uh, of you. Um, I haven't been to the beach yet. I probably will take a drive up to the, to, uh, you know, Hollywood and Highland and check out, you know, uh, what is sort of our kind of premier tourist uh, destination there on the, the Chinese theater and the Walk of Fame. But um, it, it's, it's definitely quiet in Los Angeles today. 
All right. Chris Palmieri, thank you so much for that update. Obviously, you know, anyone who's been to Los Angeles, even the way you describe it, uh, it's hard to get your head around. And and New York City, uh, from what I hear, I haven't been there in a week uh, in downtown Manhattan or in in midtown Manhattan, rather, where our office is. Carol, I know you were there earlier this week, but I think a similar scene. And certainly it's going to get even more so uh, now that we have this effective uh, shelter in place. That was Chris Palmieri. He is our Los Angeles Bureau Chief, a longtime resident of that city, so uh, really knows what he's talking about there. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Now this story, it's the cover story of the magazine this week, a must read. It's about finding the cure for the coronavirus and the researcher who helped save millions of lives from HIV now trying to do the same with COVID-19. Rob Lingrith is healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News. He's on the phone in New York. Also with us, Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week, on the phone from Brooklyn. This is a great story. Um, and this was an individual, Rob, to be quite honest, I didn't know much about. Tell us uh, about him. Well, so he uh, first rocketed to fame in the 1990s when he was one of the Dr. Ho, David Ho. He, he was one of the key people who tested the HIV drug co- cocktails that dramatically uh, lowered the death rate uh, for HIV and AIDS. Uh, and he was the first doctor to be named Times Man of the Year back then. So he's kind of one of the world's most famous living AIDS researchers. And now he's, uh, you know, changing much of his lab to focus on rapidly finding a treatment for the coronavirus. And so, Joel, how did this figure into the way that you guys have been uh, covering this story? I mean, it's a very uh, powerful cover, and I have to say an optimistic one uh, at a time when uh, a, a lot of us are feeling pretty down about our chances here. Well, look, to be clear, you know, they're not they're not uh, near a, a cure at, like right now. This is not a plug-and-play moment. Right. But, you know, this is an example of a, of a line of – uh, coverage that we're um, rapidly working on, which is, you know, what are our chances to actually get something that looks like a treatment or a cure? And, you know, David Ho is, is sort of a huge name in a certain world. And um, that was why we wanted to put the spotlight on him. But to be clear, you know, and, and Bob can speak more to this, there are similar efforts going on mm-hmm. lots of different places right now. Yeah. So, Bob, yeah. talk about that, because, you know, it does feel like we are getting this sense of urgency and maybe it was going on and we just weren't paying attention to it. But this week and maybe it's because a lot of this is being pumped up by the president and, and others that there is this in, in a very productive way, sort of a, a, a race for a cure here. Yeah, that's absolutely kind of what's going on. And I think, you know, what happened was, you know, when it was still mostly in China, I think there was a sense of, of a wait and see a little bit among some of the you know, big drug and biotech companies. So you just didn't know, you know, whether this thing, like so many other epidemics in the past, uh, was going to, like, fade a little bit. And by the time they had treatments, like, no one would need them anymore. But that's clearly not going to be the case. This thing is around. It's, it's here to stay, even if it Say, for example, if it size a little in the summer, or even if the social distance, distancing stuff works and then slows it down a lot, the disease isn't going to go away. There's only been one virus in the world that's ever gotten out to such an extent that he's like totally eradicated, that smallpox, and that wasn't a respiratory virus. Isn't, that, way. isn't that incredible when you think yeah. about that? Like all the viruses totally. in the world, in the history of the world, and we've really only eradicated one of them. And that shows you what we're up against here. 
Bob, you know, you know, one thing I also thought was really striking in your story is that, you know, you talked about the work that Dr. Ho has done and that, you know, when SARS was around, he was, you know, had developed antibodies. Um, but by the time, you know, it got wrapped up, everybody kind of lost interest in finding some kind of treatment for it. And he didn't need a lot more money. I think it was about 20 million, you write in your story. I do wonder, is this different? Because we are anticipating that the coronavirus in some form or another, um, or COVID-19, this is going to be with us for a while. Yeah, I think this will definitely be with us for a while. And I think what happened with SARS and some of the other coronavirus outbreaks, uh, there's another one in the Middle East called Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. What happened in the past is we got a false sense of security and that some of those, uh, you know, didn't really fully take off and we're, we were able to suppress them before they really uh, caught hold. Uh, but this one just spreads more easily and it's just out there in the world now. And so we really do need to develop a treatment. And the long term, I think there, it is a virus. We have a track record of eventually developing treatments for viruses that are successful. So I think long term, there's reason for optimism. But we must be realistic in that a lot of these treatments, they aren't going to come like right now when we want them. Right now, what we have, as we say in the story, is kind of soap and social distancing. Those are the main tools we have right now. And so help us understand, I mean, Bob, you understand this so well that sort of the the medical pharmaceutical sort of industrial complex, and I'm not saying that conspiratorially, but it's a complicated world and you do have some of the biggest companies uh, attacking this. How much cooperation is there? How much healthy competition is there? Help us get a sense of the broader landscape here. Well, yes, you do have all sorts of companies uh, starting to do all sorts of things with both drugs and vaccines, and it's hard even for someone like me to keep track of, frankly. Uh, and it, it, I really don't have a good sense of, you know, what the competition, what the corporation is now, because so many different new things are starting up all at once. There's companies like Gilead Sciences that are mm -hmm. testing drugs. There's companies like uh, Regeneron Pharmaceuticals that are also working on antibodies. The Regeneron is another company, and I believe there is some cooperation between Dr. Ho and Regeneron on at least some of the projects. Uh, but, uh, yes, there's many things being started up very rapidly, and it just it's a very muddled and uncertain situation because many of these things are just kind of going into testing now. We really don't have a good sense yet of which ones are going to turn out to be most promising. So, Bob, can you bring it back to Ho for a second real quick and just – and I know I can hear Carol already just telling me to, you know, go ahead and wrap it up and keep. No, 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 no. We That's got a time. great question. <laughs> we, no, no, no. We have good time. <laughs> what is the approach that uh, Dr. Ho is using or thinks he'll be able to use to to, you know, do, take take a number on the coronavirus? Yeah, so he is, Dr. Ho is basically leveraging some of the years of uh, expertise and learnings uh, they've gotten from developing treatments for HIV successfully. And in fact, one of the main approaches uh, he, he is uh, taking is uh, to try uh, to attack some of the same enzymes uh, in the coronavirus that were also present and successfully attacked by HIV drugs. Uh, so he is basically applying some of the learnings to make kind of pill-style drugs uh, they, they could block the replication of this coronavirus and possible other future coronavirus strains. And that's one of the main things he's doing. Uh, and he's also separately in a separate project working on antibodies against the uh, coronavirus uh, based on uh, uh, blood samples from patients who've recovered. So he's kind of doing several separate projects at once in hopes that uh, one of them comes through. 
What I'm curious about too, and Joel, you know, we thought this was such an important story. We gave, we're going to give you a lot of time <laughs> today. <laughs> I've, good. Thank you, I, I even went on surveillance yesterday and teased uh, up this story. Um, what I'm curious is what's his time frame? Because I think as Americans, we're watching the task force updates, the coronavirus task force updates. There's a lot of health officials talking about, you know, drugs on the market that are already out there that maybe could be used. I think there's a lot of confusion about, you know, exactly what is the medical cure or when is the medical cure potentially going to be out there? Um, it's not anytime soon. Yeah, well, the short answer is, you know, we don't know. Mm. Uh, and the fact is uh, that, you know, most of these things we're talking about are not yet in human trials. And the things Ho is working on are probably more than a year away from human trials. There are a few things at other companies, uh, such as a Gilead drug, a Gilead Sciences drug, that are in trials right now. Uh, but the you know, if you look back at Ebola, we actually developed successful treatments for Ebola, but it took a while. Uh, so, so it's possible we could get lucky in one of these kind of off-the-shelf things uh, that they were talking about right now in these off-the-shelf drugs, which was kind of already out there, uh, may work to some extent against this virus. But uh, the likelihood is we'll probably need to develop uh, uh, targeted, customized treatments that are targeted right at this virus to really have something that really works well. Joel, I want to, if I can, you know, just take an opportunity since we do have you, we've got a couple more minutes, just to ask you, like, how it's going, you know, with the magazine and things like that. We really haven't had a chance to catch up with you uh, on air about sort of putting this all together and, and keeping on top of the news. Help us understand what's going on. Well, we've never been this remote before, and so I think um, that part is just a challenge for, for, you know, doing, doing work in general. And I know everybody else knows what I'm talking about right now. It's just like, to, you go, you go stir crazy, um, uh, after day two, I think. And mm-hmm. here we are on, on sort of day four and counting for most of us. Um, so I think there's, that's just the real thing. Um, and we've been able to do a lot of, you know, the work that we need to remotely so far. So knock on wood, everything's good on that front. Um, and we, you know, we just have a ton of stories that we have in motion um, that we're really excited about. Not unlike, you know, some of them are a lot like Bob's where it's just like, right. let's talk, let's get into the science of like, how do we get out of this mess? But look, like this story is touching so many facets of our lives. You think about the economic impl- implications of this and what the bailout chatter is all about. Like we're going to be, this is by far the story of 2020. And look, it, it's looking like yeah. it could be a lot longer than that. Well, I just think of what you guys did last week and making it completely the issue and saying, you know, talking about the lost year, you know, you're spot on. Um, Bob, if I can just bring you in for one last question, um, or we've got a little bit more. David Ho, is he talking with the folks in Washington? I do, you know, the magazine has done some great coverage about talking about the importance of coordinated efforts, you know, certainly on a financial and market basis, but even more so in terms of attacking the virus uh, on a health basis. So I do wonder, did David Ho, what was his perspective or take on that? That is he being reached, you know, called upon? Does he feel like the health community uh, is really being brought in? together to work on this well he does you know i don't know the extent of his contacts in washington i I assume he probably does have lots of them uh we were lucky to get get into dr ho you know and a few days before new york see him in person before new york that kind of totally uh, shut down and you know like 
uh, many, you know, he's has so many demands on his time right now, like a lot of the researchers responding to this, that he's, you know, become very hard to get through to at all. It's sort of this frazzled sense of, you know, 24-7 trying to find something. But he has lots of contacts you know, around the world in China and Hong Kong and elsewhere, and that's kind of one reason why he was able to get this effort up and running uh, so quickly, because, you know, he has, he is very well connected to the virus research community with lots of people. All right, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much, uh, Bob Langrith. Robert Langrith is his byline. He's a healthcare reporter. He's got the cover story this week in Business Week, and it's an important one all about the race for a cure. Uh, Really a must read. Telling you about someone that maybe you've heard his name, but the backstory here, there's some great details about even uh, Dr. Ho sort of learning things about bats and their uh, role in all this and how many there are in the world and uh, and whatnot. So our thanks to him, to Bob Langerth, as well as, of course, to Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, both joining us on the phone from their respective homes. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Tracking the path of COVID-19, it is incredibly helpful in learning about the virus and how to fight it. Andy uh, Pekosh is Professor of Molecular Microbiology and Immunology at Johns Hopkins University, Bloomberg School of Public Health. Uh, Joining us on the phone from Baltimore, the Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Um, Andy, nice to have you here with us. Um, Tell us a little bit about tracking and how easy it is and what kind of coordinated efforts are we seeing around the globe to be able to do that in a really smart way. Yeah, so you're seeing a lot of now um, uh, sites that are ramping up their testing. You're seeing a lot of reporting of this data in almost real time, and now there's multiple uh, web-based um, uh, sites that you can look at to sort of see where cases are occurring and um, the rate at which they're increasing in different areas. So I think tracking in terms of, um, of, of accessibility of the data is getting pretty good, although I think we still need to ramp up and do more testing in many places, particularly here in the U.S. So, Dr. Pekash, I mean, help us understand how this is spreading. What are we learning that's new and different? How much... Uh, do we know about this that's just based on, on previous models? I think all of us are just trying to get some sense of where this goes next, and I feel like you're much smarter than I am about understanding that. Well, you know, we're, we're all learning along the way here. Um, I think, you know, the main thing that uh, has changed um, probably over the last month significantly has been we went from assuming that most of the infected cases are showing severe disease um, in, uh, in other words, strong enough to, re- to reach out to some medical care, to now getting a sense that most of the people are not getting disease that's so severe that they would necessarily seek out mm. um, uh, medical care. And what that does is, I mean, it, it's great because obviously it's telling us that there's fewer cases are going to be severe in terms of the overall number of cases, but it makes tracking and keeping and, and monitoring for people who are potential spreaders very, very difficult. Because you and can no longer say symptoms are going to bring you into a, um, right. a containment program. And so is that why – I mean, I, I do feel like we're getting this renewed or, or maybe new sense of urgency from governors and mayors and whatnot. Is that essentially why all this social distance – this is a dumb question maybe, and an obvious question. But is that why this social distancing piece is so important because you've got a lot of unwitting carriers out there? No, I think that's absolutely the case. Um, and we're starting to realize how, how, 
how many of those there are. And so the sooner you can instigate some of these, um, uh, or implement, I should say, sorry, uh, some of these methods, the more likely you are to really make an effort, to make an impact in terms of the number of cases. And it has to happen when now when there are low numbers of cases around, because if you can find five or six really sick people, you've probably got a huge number of, of, of people who are spreading in the community. Um, doc, Dr. Pekos, what is it that you find so troubling about this virus in particular? Well, I think it's exactly that. Um, in certain populations, you can see mild disease. Yet in other populations like the elderly, like those with secondary medical conditions, like respiratory conditions, this virus is still very, very deadly. Um, and, um, you know, initial numbers here in the U.S. are showing that there is a little bit more severe disease in younger populations. So I think that even younger populations need to think carefully about um, uh, or need to think uh, seriously about this problem because um, it's causing disease across the spectrum. But again, there are, there are small groups of populations that, that it causes very severe disease in, and we have to find ways to protect them. What does it mean for the future? And I do think about, I think what's striking about this too is that folks are saying this is going to be a virus that's going to be with us for a while. And I know a vaccine may take until 2021 perhaps to find uh, that out. But I do wonder, are we entering an era where we are just going to be dealing with a whole new class of viruses? Well, you know, this virus, um, you know, is is going to be a challenge for us. Um, We don't know how transmission is going to change over time. I think we look to countries like China and Korea um, and Japan as countries that have found a way to control the number of cases. But what we now don't know is how long we have to keep these public health interventions in place to maintain this virus at very low levels. That's the big challenge going forward is not knowing how long some of these efforts are going to be in place. Yeah, that seems to be the case, too. And I would imagine you studied this so extensively that you also, I would imagine, fear a a moment where people say, okay, uh, even if it's like a slight all clear, people just sort of go nuts again and they're like they're out at bars and they're doing their thing and they're taking vacation and all those things. I, I have to think that's something we're worried about, too. Right. No, there there are multiple examples throughout history where public health interventions have worked very well, but then they're either re- relaxed too quickly or um, people start to not follow them as stringently as they should. And you start to see these rebounds of cases that come in. So, um the, you know, the flattening the curve that everybody's talking about these days that you're seeing on social media is a very, very real thing that um, that we have to um, um, work towards using these public health interventions because that's all we have right now. All right. We really appreciate your time. Dr. Andy Pekosh is Professor of molecular, molecular Microbiology and Immunology at the Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health, as you can tell by the name, the Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Mike Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP. Bloomberg Philanthropies, and of course, uh, the parent company of this radio station. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
We've got about 13 minutes left in the trading day to wrap up the Friday, but really to wrap up what's been a very volatile week when it comes to the financial markets and equity markets. Back with us is Abe Deshpande. He is founder and chief investment officer at Centerstone Investors. He's joining us on the phone from Connecticut. Abe, so good to have you here with us. A crazy week, and I do want to, both Jason and I want to hear your perspective on the markets. Tell us, though, a little bit about your personal life. You guys okay? Um, the impact that this is having on you. Oh, hey, Carol. Um, yeah, I mean, that's very sweet of you to um, inquire. We're we're good. I'm really more worried about the city. I mean, 60% of New York City has is, comp- is comprised of people who really can't pay rent after if they don't get one week's worth of pay. I mean, they, they're living week by week. And so we've got like a major kind of civil or civic issue that, that needs to be uh, tended to. And I'm really spending a lot of time thinking about that. Um, but I do appreciate it. Yeah, we're, we're fine. Um, that's, you know, bit of a panic everywhere in the Northeast and increasingly more panic uh, driven, as you know. Well, it, it is. It, sorry, just to pick up on that, if, if I can. I mean, it is interesting, Abe, to, to, just to go with what you're saying for a second. I mean, it it is revealing some real sort of cracks in the system in many ways, right? Sort of societally. And I know we know from talking to you a lot in the past, like, you're incredibly thoughtful about that, and you and you think well beyond the markets, and think culturally and societally, and and things like that. What do you think as we move through this, the outcomes will be? Uh, well, hopefully a more positive one, where um, people are more you know apt to think about their neighbors' uh, concerns and not the not just their own concerns. Uh, the the you know the fact that the you know, people live day, to, day by day or whatever, paycheck to paycheck. It's not new. I mean, it's right. a fact. I mean, half the country doesn't have any savings, and this has been the case for a long, long, long time. Um, what what um, I ho- am hopeful for, and I can see this occurring, um, is that, you know, communities begin to um, kind of get together to help the least fortunate. And in this case, the least the less fortunate are those most vulnerable and older folks that, that um, need to be cared for. Yeah, I think that's a really important issue, and I, I do wonder when we, as we see these programs come out of Washington in particular, that there's going to be, hopefully, the assistance uh, directed towards uh, individuals like that you're talking about, because those are certainly uh, very much in need. We do want to ask you, um, Abe, because I was reading through your notes. I mean, you sound like that, you know, you guys are putting some money to work, so you're seeing opportunity at this point. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I never want to sound like a profiteer or anything no, like that, but, you know, we, we do um, we have a business to run, and um, so, uh, you know, in a normal environment, we'll have established some sort of intrinsic value for a company, and we'll tr- kind of trade based on where the price is relative to intrinsic value. Right now, we're, there's such a great deal of, ins- obviously, there's so much uncertainty regarding whether or not certain companies can even survive for more than a few months. I mean, business is shut down, right? So... Um, I think the government, I mean, you know, hey, I, I'm going to tell you, I, in the beginning, I was really kind of irritated about still the kind of partisanship that was going on just two weeks ago. And um, and I, you know, voiced my own concerns with the people that I know in, in, in you know, in politics. And it, it didn't take long for them to get their act together and um, realize that the United States is the main constituency. Um, so I'm kind of impressed. Uh, in that case, the fact that you know we've essentially been ordered to shut down all business means that the government needs to have a massive backstop for business, um, just so they don't have to lay off all their employees and create that kind of depression era sort of scenario that people are fearing. Uh, so, 
I mean, on the positive side, everything's happening that should happen given the type of like bird strike we just saw, just uh, that had that we just had. So, um, what we're doing from a portfolio perspective is we're, however, focusing more on companies. Um, we had these in our portfolio anyway, but we're focusing even more on them. Businesses where the intrinsic values are more like more than likely to be stable. So companies like uh, TransCanada, uh, which is a pipeline operator, Target in the United mm-hmm. States is going to uh, clearly gain market share. In fact, if, if, in the worst case, there are only going to be three li- retailers left: Walmart, Target, and and, uh, and Amazon. So the, um, the the priority really is uh, focusing on um, a focusing on these uh, businesses where we can be. Sp- certain that balance sheet and business model can withstand uh, literally anything, including this. On the Down the ch- line a little bit are companies that have probably very good uh, chance of surviving, whose intrinsic values will be variable, but, you know, within a, tolerable, uh, within a tolerance. But the earnings, uh, you know, are clearly uncertain. You know, put a, sort of a target in there. Uh, Sunoco, you know, another company we own is called Sunoco. Not the, not the uh, gas station company, but it's a, it's a uh, materials company, packaging. Mm-hmm. They 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 have a monopoly on toilet paper rolls, the car- cardboard inserts. Um, you know they have a they are they serve the p- packaging, packaged goods companies that you know Pringles and things like that that you buy in the grocery store. I mean it's a type of business that's doing probably really well right now, considering their cost of materials, corrugated paper is going down, and there's a huge amount of demand for their uh, customers' products. Yeah. So you know, and then down the line are the kind of okay these stocks are down eighty percent. Um, but God knows when they're reco- going to recover if. And, you know, as value investors, we're still looking at maybe $0.20 cent dollars there and going, okay, we'll take, we'll take some chance there. Um, now, we're basically fully invested. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, <laughs> I have to caution that um, I'm all, almost always early. Um, and in this case, I wouldn't be uh, surprised if we're early. I also have to, you know, admit that I, I, I really didn't see this coming at all, and I was very, very, very slow to react to it. Uh, certain times you want your captain to be kind of, fear, you know, like slow and steady. Sometimes, you know, that slow and steady is it, it just the slow part hurts you. And I and I and Abe, I, I want to ask you just about that. Like, why do you think it? Because you are always looking around the corner. Like, why do you think you and and many many others sort of miss this in in many ways or miss the severity of it? Well, I don't know about everybody else, but I, I just was complacent. Um, I have seen, because I've been investing in these global financial markets for three decades, and I've seen ma- huge like financial crises and housing collapses, I mean, not just in the United States, but all over, currency wars. I've seen viral epidemics before. Yeah. So, uh, and, and with that mindset, oh, I've seen it all. Yeah. You know, well, it just made me complacent, right? I did What I did not see is how, how uh, quickly this panic would spread and how, the reaction of governments would become so extreme to this. So, or maybe, I mean, rightly extreme. I don't want to say that it's wrong. Um, so that, that was at least my mistake. I, everyone else, I have no idea. But I clearly could have done a better job. Well, and we're seeing, you know, headlines continuing to cross. Just want to mention the energy sector just so beaten up. Occidental holding talks with borrowers to address uh, the debt pile that's out there. You know, when we get to the other side of this, Abe, I mean, are you anticipating that there's companies out there that, I mean, Will there be a big wave of consolidation, just companies that are going to have to be bought up or just companies that will just not make it? Well, we'll see what – so um, there's two paths. One is um, since it's a government shutdown, the government back ro- backstops payrolls like they just announced in the U.K. Mm-hmm. It's something I've been pushing with the government. It, I mean, it, and I can't even believe I'm advocating some of these things, but it's necessary right now. 
So in that case, we can just put a quote-unquote pause, which is, the, I guess that's the term du jour. Um, but the, a real pause requires, like, literally everyone secure, uh, including employment. If that happens, then it, it will be a slow but methodical um, recovery. Uh, it will take a while because uh, people aren't just going to go out and, you know, hang out with everybody else after this. Uh, but that would that w- that would cr- allow for a methodical recovery. Another one is like a haphazard, um, you know, uh, approach to uh, filling uh, or plugging holes as they they pop up, and that could really create a um, unintended a wave of unintended consequences. All right, we're going to leave on a- that. Abe, so sorry. Um, I know we had to to drop out there, and we apologize. Um, but great to get your thoughts there. Abe Dishbande, founder and chief investment officer at Centerstone Investors. Joining us on the phone from New York City. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.